0: Lord, how can I know you'll come through? And it's absolutely astonishing that what God does is he appears and he passes between these pieces. He is saying, I have promised to bless you, Abraham, and if I don't do what I say, may I be cut off, may I be destroyed, may my body be
1: ripped to pieces. God walked through the pieces alone. Today on the Songtime broadcast, we continue our year in review. In this message from Timothy Keller, we'll look back to our study in the story of Abraham and a God who makes covenants, keeping His side of the promises even when we can't keep our side of the bargain. Stay tuned for that powerful message. But first, we're going to be joined by Christopher Ash as a part of our Doctrine series, as we talk about the sovereignty of God and how God is in complete control of everything, even when it seems. The world around us is falling apart. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. Earlier in the year, we started off with a commitment to challenge you to grow in doctrine and theology. Where we're using Paul David Tripp, uh, his book "Do You Believe," which broke down uh, the whole year into 12 distinct doctrines and we didn't get through all of them quite honestly i wish there was more we could have done there there were so many interviews we wanted to do but based on scheduling and all these other conflicts it didn't always work out to our exact anticipation but we did have several really great interviews one of them with christopher Ash, who wrote a book called where was god when that happened and other questions about god's goodness power And the way he works in the world. As we think about the God who is, the God who is sovereign and in control of all things, it's hard for us to reconcile that with the reality that we face trials and tribulations on a regular basis. If God is truly on his throne and Christ is seated at his right hand, then why do we face so many troubles in this world? Why do the things that we set our minds to and our hopes to? seem to fall apart. I posed that question earlier this year with Christopher Ash and asked him why it is that if God is in complete control, would he allow us to go through certain circumstances and ask this question, where were you when that happened to me, God? Here is Christopher Ash.
2: I suppose the kinds of things where the, where the scriptures in the Psalms, for example, they talk a lot about waiting mm-hmm. and hoping and praying. And that's a lot of the life of faith is waiting, trusting that God will do what he's promised he will do. But bowing before his wisdom and trusting that he's doing things patiently and wisely and well. And that although we think we could organize it better, we really can't. And I was when I was working on the book of Job some years ago, that thing about waiting such Mm. a big deal. Job's comforters don't have any place for waiting, it's all got to happen straight away. But Job waits and struggles, and in the end, he's blessed. Mm.
1: And ultimately, you know, God asked Job a question, right? Where were you? Um, Yes. This idea of of Job thinking, you know, asking this question, where were you, God, when, and then God asking the question, where were you? Uh, That really puts everything into perspective.
2: It does, and it's it's the wisdom of God, the infinite wisdom of God, that God, as it were, he has the whole picture. He knows what he's doing. And none of us has more than a tiny little bit of the picture.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So we think we know the best thing to do if, you know, the, the sort of thing somebody says, if I were God, um, to which the proper answer is, it's a good thing you're not. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm not.
1: Mm. Now, sovereign... Um, it literally translates into a a world that we understand. It it talks about kingship, uh, rule and reign, uh, a sovereign leader, a king of kings, a lord of lords. That certainly deals with the fact that God is the highest and most preeminent leader and the king of kings, but does it really imply the sovereignty? Do we Are we putting a weight on God that is beyond what uh, what he has actually described, that he is actually in control of all things, or is it simply above all things?
2: Uh, that's a really good question. And I'm confident that the Bible says that God really is in control, that nothing happens without God's decree in some sense, that he controls vegetation, he controls animals, he controls the weather, he even directs the human heart, he controls nations. Um, Nothing happens outside of his, there's no power independent of God anywhere. But I think the other thing that's really important is the prayer in the Lord's prayer that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which implies, I think both that God's will is done on earth but that it's not done on earth in the same way as it's done in heaven. Mm. And we're longing for the day when it will. So in some strange way, things happen under God's decree on earth at the moment that, that don't accord with what pleases God in an ultimate sense, truth and love and beauty, kindness and, and that sort of thing. And it's really hard to get your head around, isn't it? I mean, I, I, theologians sometimes talk about the distinction between what God de- wills in his decrees and what God wills in terms of what pleases him morally and ethically. And I think the Bible forces us to some sort of distinction like that. And we, sometimes we just have to say, well, I don't completely understand it, mm. but, but I'm going to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
1: I think that's a really important point, and uh, one that really has to be addressed in the context of of what God can't do. And I, I know it's you know we're talking about uh, can God create a rock too big that He couldn't lift it? You know that kind of conundrum of paradox. But there are certain things that God cannot do. He can't do anything that's contrary to His character, His nature. Um, he could not, uh, therefore. Uh, justify sins by any other means than the work of Christ on the cross. He had to have someone to be the propitiation. Uh, There are things that God could not do. That's why God didn't answer Jesus' prayer in the garden and let the cup pass from him, because this was the way, this is his will on earth, uh, and working within a world that is broken.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, That that The kind of overflow of the sufferings of Jesus in Christian people where Jesus says to Simon Peter in Luke's Gospel, Satan has demanded to sift you, you plural, the disciples. And he will, and he does, and God doesn't stop him sifting us. In some way, it's necessary for the glory of God that that, that we should be sifted. And the thing in Colossians chapter 1 where Paul talks about the, the kind of Overflow. What's what's left over of the sufferings of Christ that Christian people uh, go through, and we need to expect that and not be surprised when that's we 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 enter the kingdom of God through many um, trials and sufferings.
1: We've been listening to my interview from earlier this year with Christopher Ash, part of our doctrine series. His book is called, Where Was God When That Happened? And other questions about God's goodness, power, and the way he works in the world is a part of that doctrine series, looking at God as sovereign and control. He rules, he reigns. But what does that mean in our day-to-day living? Can we see that? Can we see that God rules and reigns? Well, here's the, the next question. Have we surrendered? Have we bowed the knee? Do we submit to him as king and ruler over our life? Or are we messing up our lives by trying to take sovereign control of our own possessions, our kingdoms in this world? Some great stuff and a great resource with Christmas in mind. This is an excellent Christmas gift, along with many other books that we have available. If you'd like to find out what we have available here on our bookshelves, uh, give us a call 508-362-7070 or head over to our website at songtime.com. Well, today we are continuing our year in review as we reflect upon the the father of our faith. We we looked at the story of Abraham back in June. And in this story, we see the development of a man who really struggled with faith, really struggled with understanding what it means to follow and obey God. And yet, it is in Abraham that we are told he is the, the founder of our faith. He is the one who models it for us. What do we learn from Abraham, especially when it comes to our relationship with God? What do we have to do? What are the things that we have to, to how do we actually behave? Well, the Bible tells us that God makes his own contracts, that God keeps his word. Where we fall short, God keeps his word. And in this message today from Timothy Keller, we'll reflect back on that message, the story of Abraham, as we see Jesus, a God making that covenant with Abraham, a covenant that Abraham could not keep and could not maintain on his own. So God does it for him. Here is Timothy Keller.
0: In verse 1, it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Do not be afraid, Abram. Now, if you stand back and look at Abram, you see that uh, the the uh, history of Abraham and uh, God starts back in Genesis chapter 12. Where, and God refers to it here in verse 7. And he says, I came to you, in the first time, when, when Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldees. And God comes to Abraham, and this is what he says. He says, Abraham, get out. Get out of your country, get out of your people, and get out of your family. And the book of Hebrews says, So Abraham got out, not knowing whither he went. When he made this promise to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to get out because I will make a great nation of you. And out of your descendants will come one through whom all the peoples of the world will be blessed. That meant two things. That first of all, God would give him a child. God would have to give him a son. And secondly, uh, he also not only would need a child, he'd need a land. And so here in Genesis 15, he comes and says... Will I have a child? Will I get this land? And God says, yes. But if you look rather carefully, he says, I'll give it to your descendants. Abraham never got any land except a little piece of land in which he and his wife were buried. God had given him these promises. And he says, I will give you this land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless all the earth for you. I will give you a child. And I want you to live as if those things are going to happen. And what does Abraham say? He says in verse 8, but how can I know? And this is what he does. The first thing is, God says, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, bring me a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, what in the world is he doing? Now, the reason this sounds so difficult to understand is because we don't live in that day and time. Abraham wasn't even really given instructions. God says, bring me these animals. And Abraham immediately knew what to do with them. He came and he cut them in pieces except the small birds and he laid them out. What's going on? He was doing something that everybody in those days and times would have known. Abram lived, not in a written culture, but in an oral storytelling culture. And the way they made contracts was actually, I mean, occasionally you've heard me joke about this maybe, uh, a lot more effective than the way we do. Because what they would do is whenever they made a contract and someone says, okay, you promised me this, how do I know you will do it? The way they would put themselves in a position where there were consequences for the brokenness of their word is that they would act out the consequence of unfaithfulness right before everyone. In those days, the way you took an oath was not by signing. How wimpy. Here's what you would do. You would take an animal, you would slay it, you would cut it, put it down on the ground, and you would walk between the pieces. And this is what you were saying. You are saying, if I do not do, everything that I am promising now may I be cut off, may I be destroyed, may, may my flesh lay on the ground to feed the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's what you're doing. A fairly effective way, don't you think? A lot better than signing, huh? You see, vivid, but when you did it, you were bound. You acted out the curse. Now, this was a covenant ratification ceremony. This was the making of a contract. He knew right away, and he figured, well, he didn't figure what actually happened. In verse 17, and when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking pot and a blazing torch appeared. It was the presence of God. Look, verse 17, it passed between the pieces. This is the gospel. You see, there's always two problems with trusting God. The first problem is Lord, how can I know about you? How can I trust your promise? How can I know you'll come through? And it's absolutely astonishing. That what God does is he appears and he passes between these pieces. Do you now know what he's saying? He is saying, I have promised to bless you, Abraham. And if I don't do what I say, may I be cut off. May I be destroyed. May my body be ripped to pieces. God's saying this. Now, if you think that's amazing, it is. But that's not all. Because Abraham looks at God at this point, in a sense, and says what most of us say. Lord, how do I know about you? Fine. You've made this promise. How amazing. How wonderful. But you know, I guess when it comes right down to it, Lord, I guess I never really thought you would break your promise. Not really. The real problem is, how do I know, Lord, about me? You said, you will be my people. I will be your God. I believe you'll be my God, but how am I ever going to be your person? I will let you down, but how do I know about me? God walked through the pieces alone. God is saying, Abraham, I'm going to go through for both of us. This is the gospel. The gospel, salvation in the Christian faith is not a cooperative effort. It is not God helps those who help themselves. It is not a partnership. God comes through and says, I will take upon myself the curse of the covenant for both of us. Abraham, may I be cut off if I don't do my part of the bargain, but Abraham, may I be cut off if you don't do yours. Abram, I will bless you, even if it means, and it did, I would have to die. Don't you realize that centuries later, darkness came down again? You read about it in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, where it says, And at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Isaiah 53, verse 8 says, He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Now, Here's how we apply this. First of all, will you see that all of your problems, and I mean all of your problems, and I mean all of your problems, come because you don't trust the promises of God? Do you know why you're worried? You don't trust his wisdom. You really don't. Do you know why you're angry and maybe bitter? You don't trust his justice. Do you know why some of you hate yourselves? Because you don't trust his love and his grace. In fact, do you know why you disobey any time ever, when you ever do the wrong thing? Because you don't trust that God is better than anything you could possibly get by disobeying. In other words, you believe I better do what will make me happy because if I trust God, if I trust God, if I trust God all the way to the bottom, I will miss out. Jesus Christ loves you so much. God poured hell itself down on him. Look at that. If you do, you'll trust. What you need is to see him. And you will say, Lord God, you are my shield, not circumstances. And you are my exceedingly great reward. Don't you see? He doesn't say... My dear friends, he doesn't say, I've come to bring you your reward. He says, I've come to be your reward. I've come to give you Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a salvation like this. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: This has to be one of my favorite sermons. It's such a great reminder the story of Abraham and why it's so foundational to much of the New Testament. Uh, I would get the kids up on a Sunday morning and have them sing the song Father Abraham <laughs> because it is such an important song, although it's really, for the kids, just calisthenics. It's just about the hokey pokey, you know, moving your arms and, and legs and jumping around. The the song itself establishes for us a crucial component to our New Testament, constantly being reminded that Abraham is the father of our faith, and he does so abstractly. We're not genetically tied to Abraham necessarily, but we are tied to Abraham because through Abraham's faith, it is modeled for the rest of us on how to trust in God. And that means we, we believe God, and that is counted to us as righteousness. It is not our works. It is not our effort. In fact, the covenant that, that God makes with Abraham was one-sided. God alone could keep that promise. Abraham would mess it up right after that story. He would go and do something foolish because Abraham was, was in the flesh. Abraham was a sinner just like you and just like me. But it's not about the, the goodness of our nature. It's not about how good we can be. It's about how good God is. Faith is not about us having enough to to actually be spiritual, but our faith is the one we are trusting in. And we are trusting in God. We are trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is why Abraham is the father of our faith. Believing God, obeying God, following God in all circumstances, and trusting Him and resting upon Him. The story of Abraham really shines through and is the foundation of our study in Ephesians, as well as in Galatians this last year, is just central to the whole New Testament understanding of faith. And it was a great study this past June. If you are remembering all of the things that we've been through, and they're bringing back good and positive memories, and and a reminder to go deeper in your faith, that's ultimately our goal. This week, and really this month, as we reflect upon our previous studies we want you to be reminded and to be reinvigorated and to count your blessings. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and this is something that we ought to be thankful for. If you're thankful for the ministry of Songtime and the, the way that we've been able to encourage you in your faith, would you consider giving back to the Songtime ministry? You can do so by writing to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts 02630, or you can give us a call. It's 508 362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or you can look us up on social media. But don't forget to tune in again tomorrow as we continue our year in review. We'll look at our study in the book of Psalms and reflect upon the many emotions that the Psalms bring forth, but in particular, how they teach us how to lament.
2: And my problem is that my affections are all disordered, aren't they? And I take it that one of the main things that the Psalms do is to order our disordered affections.
1: On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, In Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him.